0: My name is Tracy Carpenter and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, welcome. We are glad that you tuned in. We believe that the church is a family and not just an event, and so we would love to connect with you. Uh, There are a few ways that you can do that. The first being um, through our website, which is www.RestoredTemecula.Church, and then click on Contact. We also have a mobile app that you can get in the Apple or the Android app stores. And through that app, you can see past uh, messages, upcoming events, and other ways for us to connect. Um, so with all that said, we hope you enjoy the message. All right. Good morning. Morning church. My name's Eric, I'm one of the pastors, I want to welcome you. Before we dive in, I'm going to go ahead and pray for our time. Uh, Father, thank you for this morning, thank you for this opportunity to open up your word and to receive from you. Thank you for this opportunity to gather as your people, to hear about your son, to experience him. And that's my desire for this morning, is that I would experience him and that we would experience him. That we'd see him a bit more clearly today. That we would have a clearer sense of what it looks like to trust and obey him and enjoy him and operate like him in every area of life to become disciples. God, we love you. We're grateful to you. And it's new since we pray. Amen. Question. What is the greatest Christmas movie of all time? Answer Die Hard. <laughs> Question Does Die Hard have needless, gratuitous scenes in it? Answer It was the 80s. <laughs> Question Am I going to talk like Dwight Shute all morning? <laughs> Answer That depends on you. I'm kidding. I'm not a top salesman at a fictional paper company that's dying. My name is Eric Berg, I'm a pastor. Welcome. I am going to talk about Die Hard today, though, for real. Uh, not because it's an airtight plot. It's not. Not because it's necessarily Bruce Willis's best work as an actor. Pulp fiction didn't come until a few years later. What makes it great for me is that it's a story. It's, like a, it's a, such a relatable story. It's about a dude who developed conviction in the middle of a crisis. That's what Die Hard's about. What so makes it great? What do I mean by that? What's a conviction? Uh, a conviction can be a guilty sentence. That's oftentimes like the way that we think about it. someone is guilty, uh, the court might say, uh, Sir, the court finds the defendant did in fact throw their neighbor's cat over the fence. Snuffles is fine, but you are not guilty. You know, like that's a conviction, right? So I'm not thinking about it from the sense of like guilt and innocence. I'm thinking about it from the perspective of truth and error. So I am convicted when I see the error of my ways and admit the truth. I'm going to say that again. I think we actually have it up on a slide. I am convicted when I see the error of my ways and admit the truth. John McClain was a New York City cop with a beautiful young family. He was good at his job. It was clear who was in charge. John McClain was in charge. He did things his way. His attitude was, I got this. And that's stupid, I know better And it caused a lot of friction with his superiors He had a a really broken relationship with authority And it didn't just cause problems at home, at work It also caused a lot of problems at home Fast forward to Christmas 88 Anybody remember that Christmas? few of us do That was the uh, the Super, not Super Nintendo Original Nintendo Christmas Nintendo NES Merry Christmas to five-year-old me, it was a good one not so for John McLean, though. He was living on opposite sides of the, of the country from his family. He was in New York City. He was working as a cop. And his wife was in Los Angeles, and she got this amazing job out there. And they were separated. They were actually estranged from each other. And so he had this kind of, I got this, I know better attitude. And it wound up isolating him from the people he needed the most. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, man, this kind of, I got this attitude, it actually sounds like a strength, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound good and strong to say, like, I got this. I know better. It's like a kind of rugged independence, a maverick spirit. And as Americans, we love that. We celebrate it. Practically, though, do you know what it means? I I spent about four seconds thinking about it. I was like, oh, shoot. That means that we don't need people. have no need for others. I got this. I know better was another way of saying, I don't need you. Preparing for this message, I started thinking about how often I take this approach in life. I got this. I know better. Which means, as a disciple for me, and if you're a disciple here, hopefully this resonates. And if you're not one, I'm so glad that you're here. Come and learn. i love, love for you to, to learn what it look, looks like to follow Jesus. As a disciple, this I know better attitude means, I don't need you, Jesus. As I was chewing on it, three things came to mind. First, Planning. This is a big one. I got this attitude and planning. In June, my wife Heather and I are actually celebrating our 10-year anniversary of marriage. I knew that was going to get some pop. Uh, any wrestling fans in the house? We've got one. D, thank you for being honest. I know there's more. There's no way that Vince McMahon is a billionaire without a few more real wrestling fans in this room. Uh, in wrestling, you can just all you have to do is mention the town of your event, and you're going to get pop. The rock has come back to Scranton. Yeah! Everybody loses it. In church, it's like, I'm, getting, you know, I'm celebrating my wedding anniversary. Yeah! Everybody goes crazy. I digress. Ten years of, of wedding, of, of marriage. <laughs> Ten years of wedding. We love to party. Uh, so we're going to celebrate this uh, summer. And I don't know if you know this. The price of oil has gone up a touch. And the price of other things has also gone up a little bit, uh, including airfare, because apparently those things are inextricably linked. So a few weeks ago, I was uh, looking for flights to Cabo. Does anybody enjoy doing this sort of thing? You're actually looking for deals? Yeah, I see some head nods. Have you you tried doing it recently? Not as fun. So I was tracking flights to Cabo. We wanted to do an all-inclusive hotel. Uh, the reason we wanted to do that is because we wanted to do basically do like honeymoon 2.0. That's what we did during our honeymoon. We didn't want to think about what to eat. We just wanted to show up and be fed, essentially. That's all we wanted to do. I, it's the only time in my life where I've been like, hmm, let's make it two steaks for me. <laughs> and they were like, I don't think I can refuse you. <laughs> It's all-inclusive. Anyway, so we want to have a 2.0 version of that. So for the, the first time, I kind of checked prices. They looked okay. They looked kind of expensive. And then I checked within 24 hours, they had gone up by hundreds of dollars. It was about a day later. So I panicked. And I started reading news articles. Does anybody do this? It's like, when's the best time to buy? Is it, to- is it now? So I started doing that. I started to basically try to find out, like, where is airfare going? What are the experts saying? And they're all saying the same thing, buy now, buy now. And it just made me anxious, and it made me worried that I'd be left out. And I was like, we're doing it, and I just bought everything all at once. Not a good deal, but I just did it. And you might be thinking, man, big deal, that's the way that markets work. That's the way the world works. And to that person, I said, like, thank you, you get my point. I can be worldly in terms of how I operate and think. I'm not suggesting that I entirely neglect the market or anything like that. I'm just saying that in a moment of fear, asking God for help wasn't even a factor in my thinking. I assumed he didn't care, and he had nothing to offer. And I operated like a spiritual orphan. Dad's distant. He doesn't care about my celebration or party. He might celebrate other people, but he doesn't celebrate me. He can't be bothered. And then I was like, okay then, I got this. Click. Click. And interestingly, I can take that same approach. That's a fairly small example, but I can take that same approach with bigger things, bigger decisions. How to live my life, what to do with my time and resources, how to handle my relationships. For example, I love to alliterate, second P, parenting. First was planning, parenting. Uh, I really thought for many years I was convinced that I was a patient person. I was actually told at my office, like, man, you're so patient. And then I became a dad. That was the end of my illusion. <laughs> that was the end. As a parent, I'll give you an example. As a parent, sometimes I just dive head first into hard things without asking for help or direction. I'm that dad. I got this. I know which way we're going. My wife's like, honey, uh, why don't you ask for directions? Nope, let's go. I take that same attitude towards parenting. Not that... The spirit's my honey. You guys know what I mean. I'm not asking for help. Sometimes I just won't pray or ask God what He wants to do. Not only in my child, but in me, in a moment of parenting, and I just dive in, and let's just say the results are mixed, at best. And too often, if I'm honest, it's more about me and less about Him. It can be more about uh, behavior, like change. Parenting can be more about behavior modification then, oh my gosh, this little person is becoming like Jesus and I have a role to play. But I got this. Forget that. I'm diving in. But here's the problem. And I've talked about this recently and last time I preached. What is the main problem in the scriptures that we all have to keep in mind as we're reading it, especially the Old Testament? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with us? Sinful, broken. What's broken? What's broken? Our hearts don't work the way they're supposed to. And I'm realizing that I can't change a heart. Nobody else is not my own even. My parenting, my planning are affected by this. I got this. I know better mindset. So is my next P, pastoring. Last one. Sometimes I think more. Sometimes I feel like that my words, my teaching, my strategizing, my explanations, my time, my work that it'll actually lead to transformation in people. I need to do those things, but it can go sideways when I assume that what others need is more of me and what I can do rather than more of him and what he can do. Sometimes I just need to stop and let him work. Sometimes the most spiritual thing I can do is just take a nap. But when I don't, what can end up happening is I can sideline Jesus. It's kind of like I'm saying, I got this Jesus, watch. Watch. Which is another way of saying, they don't need you, they need me. That's not good for you or for me. So this I got you kind of mindset can cast a shadow over my entire life. From the smallest things, plane tickets, to the biggest things. I don't think I'm alone. Think about your life. Take a minute, just think about your life. How do you know if you have this, I got this, I know better mindset? How do you know? One way to think about it is this What do you fear? What are you anxious about? What causes you pain in life? Take a second to think about that. The next question What do you do or turn to to feel better? What do you do or turn to to feel better? The anxiety and fear that we feel, and the security, the insecurity I should say, that's often underneath underneath it, and the strategies that we rely on to feel better. I got this. They're an expression of something that we don't say out loud. What is that thing we don't say out loud? One thing you'll never hear out loud in a church. Gathering, I don't need you, capital Y. Today we're going to unpack a promise that Jesus makes that flips this whole thing on its head. And if we receive what Jesus is saying this morning, it's kind of like opening up windows to let in a breeze and sunshine into a dark house. Jesus is offering us openness, light, and refreshment into the dark places of our souls. And it's available to anybody who wants it. Open the scriptures with me if you have them. If you don't, they'll be up on the screen. Matthew 5, verses 1 to 8. Matthew 5, verses 1 to 8. This is the famous sermon on the Mount. This is the most famous uh, teaching uh, ever, I would argue. I also think it's the best. And it just keeps getting better the more time I spend with it. It's like you just draw out more and more and more of the riches. So today we're going to focus in on verse 8, but we'll read verses 1 to 8. You guys ready? When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then they began to teach. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In today's verse, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Today, we're just going to answer one question. Who are the pure in heart? If you're taking notes, just write that down. Who are the pure in heart? Here we go. Greek. This was written in Greek. We speak English. Some of us speak second languages. Most of us don't. That's fine. If you were European, you would speak three or four. We're Americans. Here we go. (laughs) Greek. Pure or clean. That's what that word means in the Greek. So sometimes it's translated as pure. Sometimes it's translated as clean. Blessed are the pure, blessed are the clean, Jesus says. This uh, idea of purity has deep Old Testament roots in the Hebrew Bible. i got a quote for you, Craig Keener. He's uh, a premier scholar today in uh, in biblical studies. And this is what he said commenting on this verse. He said, the pure in heart, which is a reference to Psalm 73, which I might be doing over the summer in the summer in the Psalms, maybe. Come on back for that. The pure in heart were those in Israel whose hearts were clean or undefiled. Those who recognized that God alone was their help and reward. The righteous would see God on the day of judgment as in the first Exodus. I want to highlight God alone was their help. That's the Old Testament background. There's more to it, but it's not less than that. and That's all you really need to know for now. They recognized, and you'll, you'll read this. If you read the Psalms, if you read the Old Testament, you're going to see God is my help. He is my refuge. He is my sanctuary, my fortress. The pure are the people who say that. There's also New Testament, deep, rich New Testament context for this. So I got another quote uh, from a couple of scholars out of the Cornerstone Biblical Commentary, David Turner and Daryl Bach. This is a little bit longer, but stick with me. So this is the, we're talking New Testament, we're going to have a little bit of old, but we're going to primarily focus it on the new. The promise that the pure in heart will see God is perhaps an echo of Psalm 24. Purity of heart amounts to internal integrity that transparently manifests itself in outward behavior. Matthew presents certain Pharisees as models of an external rule-oriented purity that Jesus rejected and condemned because it masked inner corruption. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Inner corruption. masked, Hidden. His disciples must possess an inner piety and purity that surpasses mere externally acceptable behavior. It's not just about looking good on the outside. Having a smile on. There's more. They have experienced the power of the kingdom, which purifies from the inside out. Religion is outside in. Christianity is inside out. Religion says, change yourself, get better, try harder, work harder. Christianity says, let's get to the rest of the message. To find out. Thus, they must cultivate integrity in their private, intellectual, emotional, and volitional lives. Jesus doesn't care for BS. If you have a BSometer and it goes off at church with a church, you're not alone. Jesus has the same BSometer. <laughs> the pure in heart. I read 15 different commentaries on this. I didn't find a single one that was like easy to remember, so I just made it up. You guys ready? The pure in heart are honest, honoring, and humble. Write that down. I worked really hard on that. (laughs) Scholars, many, many words to say simple things. Honest, honoring, and humble. Honest. What do I mean by that? What you see is what you get. These are not people who are serving an image of themselves. They're not trying to put their best face forward, or their whatever, foot, face. They put their foot in their mouth a lot, and they acknowledge it. They're not serving an image. They're not relying on pretense, faking, exaggeration. They don't lead a double life that comes out later. They're honest. They are honoring. What you see is what you get, and then what you get is love for God and people not self-focus, not self-preservation. They love from the heart. And they are humble. What comes out of their mouth is, help, I need help. In other words, the pure in heart are not relying on strategies to get their needs met, but on their Savior, who is their refuge, who is their rock, who is their salvation. What are some strategies? We're going to talk a lot about strategies today. Let's look at two of them. Exhibit A, performing. Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18. One of the things that we don't get the benefit of doing when we do these uh, messages on Sunday is reading the entire book of Matthew. That would take a long time. I believe it takes about two and a half hours, give or take. It would really help us because all the things that Jesus is talking about here in the Beatitudes get unpacked as you go through the book. Can't do that. Ain't hey, nobody got that kind of time. So, I'm just going to go forward and pick out what I mean. So this is, we're going to start by looking at performing. Jesus addresses this. One of the key things that the Israelite did was fast. Who here likes fasting? Exactly. They did a lot of that. They did a lot of it. Whenever you fast, so fasting is, is, is a way to... What was the definition? Tom had a great definition for the feasting on God. The lugs coming in strong. Foregoing food to feast on God. So the point is you get God. That's the point of fasting. You get more of Him. You get clarity, understanding. you feel your own dependence on him. But here's what was happening: Fasting was being used as a cover for inner corruption. When you fast, Jesus says to, to the people, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, the actors. For they make their faces unattractive, so their fasting is obvious to people. So who is this really about? Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. I don't need you. I got this. When you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your your fasting isn't obvious to others but to your Father who's in secret. Performing is a way to prove ourselves to others. It's about us. It's about other people. It cuts God out of the equation. Sometimes we can be so good, in the church world especially, that we might win an Academy Award. There's an, if there was an Academy Award of like church performances, there would be some really strong candidates across the nation and world. But Jesus isn't fooled; he sees right through it. His BSometer never fails. So religious performance is one thing. I'm here to prove that I'm valuable. I'm good. Here's the thing though, strategies, you know what happens with strategies? They fail. What happens if I don't feel valuable or good? Then what? Do I pull back? Do I pass? Strategies fail. So there's religious ways of performing. There's also irreligious ways of performing, secular ways of performing. Cancel culture. If religious culture is to work really hard to look good, then irreligious culture today, cancel culture, is re- working really hard through pressure and shame to make sure others clean up their act. Either way, it's a failed strategy. You know why? What does it miss? What's our problem? Let's hear it hearts. Our hearts are broken. And what does is, what is religious performance and cancel culture not touch at all? The heart. It can't. They can only change behavior. Only a short time. Like my self-driven parenting. Performance is, is a strategy. that actually gets in the way of purity of heart. We're not done, though. There's another P word. I told you I like to alliterate. Pretending. This comes straight from the Green Book for those of you guys who are in the gospel community. If you're new to our community, down the road, if you jump into an intro to the gospel community, we're going to cover this in a lot more detail. But pretending and then performing is another strategy. Look at Matthew 23, verses 27 to 28. Matthew 23, verses 27 to 28. And this is Jesus. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. A woe, W O E, is uh, it's a curse. It's like pronouncing a curse in a sense. What did he do in the Beatitudes? What did he pronounce? A blessing, the pure. Here's a woe. Yep. Woe. Yep. Exactly. This is this is intense. This is Jesus, meek and mild, with his BSometer just raging. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people. You look good. You look right. Looks like you're in right relationship with God and people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Pretending is a way to hide in plain sight. Others don't know the truth. But Jesus knows. Are there any fans of the show Friends in the house? Three of us. I know there's more. It's just not possible. No way that you're like the most famous TV show of all time. There's three of us that like it. Also, I'm going to find the wrestling fans in the room. We're going we're gonna to talk later. I know you're going to be watching WrestleMania today. What? <clears throat> Uh, when there was a there was a little while. This feels like ancient internet stuff, but whatever. There was a little while where there was something really popular on the internet called like your friends quiz. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Which character of Friends are you? Anybody? Yes. Three of us. Again, this doesn't become a thing if three of us are acknowledging this. Okay. So there's a Friends quiz. I'm always Ross. Every time. I'm particular and pedantic. The Mesozoic era is actually the bigger category. The Jurassic era is a subset. (laughs) But don't tell that to the reptiles in the back, because they don't know that 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 era is over. (laughs) I'm Ross. So I'm Ross. My favorite character, though, might be Monica. Would anybody be a Monica in the room? B. Okay, all right. I probably shouldn't have asked that because I'm about to share. Whatever. We could scrub that from the tape later. Uh, so Monica, I think Monica has what is potentially the greatest moment in the history of Friends. If you don't know who Monica is, she is a. Um, how would you describe her? She's a neat freak, tightly control like tight control, very well organized. Yes, it's not all bad. It's not all bad. Neat Freak doesn't... Is, I don't, yeah, I guess it sounds negative. She's, she's intense. She's well-organized. One of the things that's fascinating about Monica's house is what isn't happening in Monica's house, which is that it's never messy. If you watch the show, it's always clean. And there is a, an emphasis on cleanliness in Monica's life. Some of you might know where I'm going with this. But if you don't, uh, we go through this, you know, years of, of getting to know Monica, of, of loving Monica, and then she ends up getting married to Chandler, and Chandler is a whole other character, but they end up, you know, they, they live in the same house, and one day, uh, Chandler's like, I'm gonna take, there's a door in the house that's locked. And I think it's got like extra locks type of thing. So Chandler's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna open this. And so he does, with his wife's tools, uh, he, he opens, the closet. What's in the closet? Everything. Everything comes spilling out. And Monica sees it and she's like, how did you get in there? And then her husband's like, you're messy. (laughs) He didn't even know. He didn't even know. And Monica says, you weren't supposed to see this. And then the extended edition of that scene, she says, she starts making excuses, and she's like, I organize into categories, and and these things don't fit. I'm not messy. I'm just organized. And then eventually at the end, she just comes undone. She's like, okay, now you know, I'm sick. There's something wrong with me. (laughs) Pretending it will fail. Strategies always fail. Fail that's a silly example but the reality is sometimes we live our lives the same way we have all this stuff locked up in a closet and we can try to leave our mess in a dark place where the light can't reach it but it will spill out it's just a matter of when and how pretending and performing are two ways of saying I've got this I don't need you here's the problem These strategies hurt us. What do they cultivate in our hearts? Dishonesty, dishonoring others, and pride. We were made for better things. We're making God's image, for crying out loud. God made us to be like Him. David, King David was a man after God's own heart. So you guys who have been in church for a while know who he is. If you haven't, I'm so glad that you're here. King David is a dude who did some amazing things in his life. He followed the Lord into some really difficult, painful, messy situations that didn't go well for him. But he did it out of a love, out of honor and honesty and humility. Really a remarkable human being. To the point where he was called the man after God's own heart. One day, uh, King David was home. Uh, he should have been probably out with his men fighting, but he was home. And he saw something. And he wanted that something, someone. He saw that it was good. He took and he ate. If you don't know what I'm talking about, he saw a woman that wasn't his wife took her, he repeated the sin of Adam and Eve, who saw the fruit, looked good, took it, ate. Like Adam and Eve, David fell. Tragic. He got this woman pregnant, Bathsheba, and then he got called out because there is no BS in God's kingdom. It's just a matter of time. David tried to cover it up by murdering Uriah, he was a husband, but he got called out. David faced a moment of crisis. He could continue pretending, defending, blaming, deflecting, saying, "I was just tired and I've been through so much. why can't What does he say?" He says, "I've sinned. I've sinned." David saw the error of his ways and admitted the truth to conviction it's a conviction. And you know what it says? It says that the Lord forgave him. You were forgiven. The consequences were significant and serious for him so that you got to read the story, bad things came of it, but he was forgiven. Psalm 51 If you've ever been in a spot where you've blown it big time, Psalm 51 is I don't know there's a scripture that's more relevant, impactful enlightening, then Psalm 51. It's David's prayer for restoration after he fell, after Nathan outed him, after a friend of his was like, you, you sinned, and, and David acknowledged it. Psalm 51, verse 1, we're going to read it real quick. It says this, Be gracious to me, God. This is the cry of a pure heart after failing. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. We talked about mercy last week. David's appealing to the mercies of God. Blot out my rebellion. He's not denying it. He's not saying, I didn't. He's saying, I need you. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion. And my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. So here there is the guilt element of conviction. He was convicted. He was guilty. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful, from, I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely, you desire integrity in the inner self. And you teach me wisdom deep within David was honest with God, with himself, and with others. How do we know that? We just read his words. He didn't hide. He recorded that and shared it. Verse 7, Psalm 51. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out my guilt. Verse 10. God, create a clean heart. Clean, pure. Help. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways. Who was the rebellious person at first? Him. The mercy of God leads him where? Who does it lead him to? God. To God and who else? People. Other sinners will return to you. Return his, his heart outward towards others. David honors. He loves God by letting his story of failure serve as a public example of God's grace. He honors He's honest. And last but not least, let's read 14 to 17 quickly. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. God of my salvation and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Can I just say this real quick? When we gather together as God's people, if you're a guest here, I'm so glad that you're here. If you are, consider yourself a disciple, when we sing, here's why we sing. We will sing of your righteousness, the God who is merciful, kind, gracious, compassionate, right, even when we're wrong. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. And here's the key, verse 17. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You won't despise a broken and humbled heart, God. David was humble. I don't got this. I need you. I don't got this. I need you. Uh, Don Carson, D.A. Carson, the Canadian philosopher, philosopher, theologian. Thank you. <clears throat> he philosophizes at times. The one who is single, this is him talking about these verses. The one who is single-minded in commitment to the kingdom, and you guys don't have this in the back, so. I'm just going to read it. "The one who is single-minded in commitment to the kingdom and its righteousness, which is coming soon, chapter six, verse 33, we'll get there. The one who is single-minded will also be pure on the inside. Inward sham, deceit and moral filth cannot coexist with sincere devotion to Christ <clears throat> to Christ. This beatitude excoriates hypocrisy. That's a word right there. Excoriate. When I read that word, I got really excited. I took six years of French, and I thought to myself, oh, core is heart. Excoriate is to like rip the heart out of something. Jesus is ripping the heart out of hypocrisy. And I looked it up. It's Latin. <laughs> and I thought, Don carsons he's from Quebec, French-Canadian. This is to- Nope, it's Latin. So I had to look that up. Excoriate. Here's a big word. Put this in your, uh, write this down. Impress your friends. <clears throat> Excoriate. From Merriam-Webster. which I want so badly to be someone's best man just to start my speech with, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines love as, but now you can say, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines excoriate as to strip off the hide. Ex means out. And corium means skin, hide, or leather. To excoriate, to take the hide out. In Psalm 51, what we see is David, in view of God's mercies, taking off what he used to cover himself the hiding, the blaming, all that stuff. He took it off. God covered David's shame. Jesus' BSometer is because he loves us too much to let us cover ourselves and our. With our strategies that's why he's got one if you remember in the garden I talked about Adam and Eve Adam and Eve they saw the fruit it was delightful to the eyes they took it they ate it and what is the first thing that you see them do? hide what do they put on themselves? fig leaves covering why do they do that? Because they were exposed, naked, and ashamed. The Lord Jesus, with these verses, excoriates hypocrisy. He takes hypocrisy off the table for the Christian. Because he's saying, don't cover yourself. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? Isn't it better to be covered up than naked and ashamed? There's something far better for us. What is that thing? On the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, who never sinned, who loved God and people, who had a finely tuned BSometer, never used it to hurt people, but did use it to help people. He was not a judgmental man, but he was an honest man, an honoring man, a humble man. Jesus went to the cross in what condition? naked, exposed. And on the cross, God put all of the consequences of our sin and and all of our shame, all of our strategies went on him so that we could receive a covering, a new identity, sons and daughters of the king, restored to their royal dignity and honor, even though we've made a mess of it. That's the good news. That's Christianity. It's excoriating the hypocrisy. I don't know if that's the way you use that word. It strips the hide off of it. God covers our shame. In Psalm 51, we see that David released his strategies so he could receive God as king. On the 30th floor of a building, burning building in Los Angeles, John McClain... Die hard. John McLean was in a burning building by himself. Uh, international terrorists, who actually weren't terrorists, they just looked that way. They were just high tech thieves, really smart guys, had broken into a Christmas party, Christmas '88, and they had taken hostage about 30 people, including John McLean's wife, a strange wife. John McLean was able to uh, get away without being noticed, although eventually he was noticed, and he was on his own. His I-got-this attitude got him nowhere. And he was facing a crisis. And what ended up happening is this man who kind of did things on his own, who adopted these strategies to make it through life and wound up alone, He grabbed his radio and he made a call. What did he do? He called for help. And Carl Winslow was on the other side. (laughs) Sergeant Al Powell was on the other side. And you know what happens? This is why this is the greatest Christmas movie of all time. They developed a friendship. The lonely man, who was just full of strategies, kind of full of himself made a friend because he called for help and his friend understood him in his situation listened to him didn't judge him said he showed him compassion and mercy he came alongside John he listened to him he put himself on the line and then he shared his own life with John he said here's my pain I understand pain I have pain too And you know what happened over the course of time as that emerging relationship, friendship, over the course of, I don't know, two glorious cinematic hours (laughs) with a lot of other things. Again, it was the 80s, so if you watch it, don't blame your pastor. (laughs) Cinematic glory. What ended up happening to John McClane was that he saw the errors of his ways and admitted the truth. He was alone, estranged from his wife, and he came to the conclusion. It took him a while to get this, but he realized I messed up. When my wife got this great job offer, I should have supported her instead of just doubling down on me. She's the best thing that's ever happened to me. She's heard me say, I love you, but she's never heard me say, I'm sorry. And he tells Al, Al, please tell my wife that. She's not sure if he's going to live or die. It was a Christmas miracle. Best Christmas movie ever. He saw the errors of his ways. He admitted the truth. He was convicted by love. If you are a follower of Jesus or if you desire to become one, Jesus wants to convict you with his love. By the way, if this is true of you already, Jesus is sitting there not telling people, do this, do this, do this. He's saying, you are blessed you need to understand something you are blessed if you're someone who has cultivated a life of honesty and honor and humility today, right now, you are blessed you are blessed Jesus' love has become real and it has revealed the error of your ways and you have admitted the truth that's what makes you a Christian not getting your life together, not getting your act together it's that Reality. And if that hasn't been the case for you or you're not sure, I want to quickly share three things. Another alliterated framework for you. Let's look at uh, profession, public, and private. If you guys can put that slide up. Profession, public, and private equals pure. There's another slide too that breaks it down a little bit more. There it is. Boomtown. Baptized. Christians are baptized. They've made a profession of faith. They've said, this Jesus who's cleansed me and washed me, I submit to his cleansing publicly. Not that the baptism itself makes you clean, but it's that you've been cleansed from the inside out and you're saying, what's true inside is now true outside. So you can see it. I'm baptized. It's an outward expression of an inward reality. The cleansed person is baptized. So for some of you, it's literally time to think, Do I need to get baptized? What's keeping me? What's holding me back? We're going to do baptisms actually on April 17th, on Easter. There's never been a better time to have that conversation. I'm not doing this to pressure you, especially if you're new, like, don't don't hear me say that. What I am saying, though, is what would keep you from having that conversation if you're a Christian? You've made a profession of faith. You're baptized, and you're openly following Jesus. People know not that you have to stand on the street corner and yell at people. But people know. Ideally, they know that you're not weird, but that you love Jesus. It is kind of weird that we worship what people would say is a dead rabbi. So that is weird. So I'm not saying not, not that. But that we do it in a way that's honest, humble, honoring. Profession of faith. This is what it looks like to walk in purity. You've made a profession of faith you live a public life in community. You are known and getting to know others. To be very clear, this isn't to suggest that this happens all overnight. It doesn't. There's some weird stuff that's happened in the church because you sit down with coffee with someone and they're like, what are all your sins? Here are mine. It's like, whoa. It gets weird quick, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a, an honest, progressive Trusting it, it, it progresses over time. But the gospel makes it safe to be known because we don't need to cover ourselves. Who's covered us? Jesus. That doesn't mean that everybody has to know everything about you, but that probably means that there's a few people who do need to know everything about you, everything that can be known. So, known and getting to know others in community. That's what I'm talking about there with the public. And then private you desire integrity in the inner self. That's David's words. If we don't have that part, we can be still pretending. If it's just profession and public, if it's not private, it's going to affect everything else, obviously, but it's going to be a performance. Does this make sense? This is a framework that you can hold on to and you can take with you. Profession of faith, public life and community, private integrity, purity. And here's the beautiful good news about the kingdom. You ready for this? This is also on the slide. I want this to, to land for you as it landed for me. The kingdom is for those who rely not on strategies, but a savior. The kingdom is for those who rely not on a strategy, but a savior. Pretending and performing our strategies there are ways, there's things we use to feel better about ourselves. A Savior says, excoriates hypocrisy, takes the hide off of it, and says, no more, because I've covered you. I've forgiven you. I've cleansed you. And we say, I'm convicted by your love. Oh, I've made a lot of errors and mistakes in my life, but I admit that you are the one I need the most. So I just want to end with this question. I'm going to call the band back up. I want to end with this question. What strategies might you need to release to receive the kingdom? What strategies might you need to release to receive the kingdom? Maybe there's things that are kind of stirring up in you as I'm talking. Maybe it's a profession of faith, a public profession of faith. That's maybe your next step, or having a conversation about it. Maybe it's taking a step to be known in community because Jesus covered your sin and shame and there's no more need to hide or pretend or perform as though that will make you right or that will cover you. Maybe it's that public life, excuse me, the private life of integrity. Maybe there are things that are hidden in the dark. Maybe Monica's closet is a thing for you. and Maybe there's things that are in the dark that Jesus is like, like Chandler, Taking the door off? Are you gonna be like, no, 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 no? Or are you gonna be like, all right, all right, you love me, you took my shame on yourself, so I'm not gonna keep this hidden anymore. I'm gonna release that strategy and I'm gonna receive my Savior. What is it for you? That's my question. What do you need to release to receive the kingdom? For some of you guys, you've been doing this work. You just need to rejoice. You just need to sing with reckless abandon as we sing because you're blessed. It's not woe to you. It's blessing to you. I'm going to pray and we'll go into our uh, response time. Father, thank you. I thank you that you have helped us to see the error of our ways and to admit the truth in your Son. Jesus, who takes the hide off of hypocrisy and strategies and puts on a beautiful covering white robes, pure robes, righteousness. A righteousness as good as his own, so that we could stand in your presence and see your face one day. Thank you for that. I thank you that Jesus, you are a friend who understood our situation. You didn't come to judge and condemn, instead, you showed us compassion and mercy. And you came alongside us and listened and loved us. And I thank you that now we are convicted by your love and blessed. I thank you that you're a savior and that we don't need to hold on to strategies anymore. But we can release them so that we can can receive your kingdom. But that you would help us. Please fill in all the gaps. In my teaching and preaching, Spirit, you do a work that I can't do bringing conviction. I ask that you would do that, and I pray that you would open our hearts to actually receive what you want to give us today, whether that's like a refreshment of the soul so that we can rejoice with reckless abandon or maybe for the first time to believe the release strategy so that we can be pure. Whatever it is, help us with the next step. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I get the uh, prayer team also to hang out in the back. I'm going to hand it off to Tom.
1: I'll be quick. Um, Honor you, dude. Outstanding. Outstanding, Eric. What we're going to do for the remainder of our gathering is we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus. So that's what I'm going to invite you to do. I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? See God. The next 15 minutes is just fix your eyes on Jesus fix your eyes on Jesus the one who's always honest the one who's always honorable the one who's humble always for every single time that we aren't he is graciously and he offers that perfection to you to cover you with it fix your eyes on Jesus for the next 15 minutes okay okay Jesus, you're so holy. There's nobody like you. Beauty unmatched. Man, I just see you like offering yourself to us over and over and over and over again. No matter how many times we distract ourselves and pursue things that are fleeting or that are ultimately not going to satisfy us, not going to give us that with which we actually desire deep down inside the things we hunger and thirst for. We hunger and thirst for you, you created us to. And yet we run to things that actually can't satisfy us. And the result is we live impure lives. And yet you over and over and over again, make yourself available to us. There's nobody like you. We honor you. We bless you. Celebrate you. You're the reason we're here. And you're with us, leading us, guiding us. Your spirit teaching us. Not condemning, convicting. With love, we praise you. We honor you and we thank you. And all God's people said, amen. All right, you guys can take a seat. I'll close this out quick. Herrick mentioned performing and pretending. And I don't don't care who you are, you're just like me. We oscillate back and forth between those two when we're not living the life that God created us to. And I wanna leave you this week with honestly, the, the, a charge, a challenge to think critically and to think honestly about which one of those you're more susceptible to. And in the process, I want to ask you a favor: don't eliminate the other one as though oh, I don't struggle with that. No, we oscillate back and forth. Sometimes it's the season of life we're in. Sometimes it's our circumstances. And Herrick mentioned something to me that I think might be helpful: this idea of performing. It's the I got this idea I got this I got this I got this in, in a sense I don't need God I got this do you struggle with that and then the uh, the pretending one what was the phrase he used I love that <laughs> it's okay he just emptied himself on the pulpit. I'm fine, you're fine, that's what it is. Yeah. Marshall, coming in in clutch, bro. Coming in clutch. No, but those two words. I'm fine. Is there a more frequent lie uttered out of the mouths of men and women, boys and girls in the history of the world than I'm fine? Maybe you are. I, I'm not judging you, I'm not saying that you're not if you are. If you are, dude, yes. But if you're not, you're pretending. And if you're pretending, you're hiding and you're choosing shame when Jesus has purchased freedom with His blood, for you, forever. So I just want to put this in front of you, pastorally in love, to say, look at the offer. God's offering something to you, namely himself. But he's offering the benefits of his kingdom. That's what this series is all about in Matthew. The king and his kingdom. We want to be people who live in and embrace God's rule and his reign and his way, his kingdom, every moment of the day. Pretending and performing, you know what it does? It taps out of the kingdom of God. Now, I don't want that. And that's what we were created for. Okay, guys? Listen, know that you're loved. Think critically about the pretending and the performing piece. Um, I would highly encourage you. There's so much gold in Herrick's message this morning. Uh, the team does a really, the team, Mark does a great job of getting that posted every week. If you need to listen back to this one, this would be a good week to listen back to. I want to encourage you. Receive God's, his, his gracious invitation to his kingdom. his rule and his reign by setting aside pretending, I'm fine. By setting aside, performing, I got this. And embrace the Savior, the lover of your soul, whose love never runs out on you. We sang it this morning, okay? Know that you're loved. Enjoy your Sunday, okay? Uh, Listen, one more thing. How much time do we have? What time is it? We have until noon. The kids' workers are going to be back there till noon. So you have like five minutes or so. The prayer team's available. There's a couple of you I talked to this morning. I really want to encourage you, receive prayer before you leave. There's a trusted men and women who make themselves available to minister to you. Some of you, God's already kind of stirring things in your heart. There's things that are on the forefront of your mind. Maybe you're emotional. Maybe you're... That's the spirit of God working, okay? let that, let's bring that to completion by your act of faith, by coming to him through prayer. Let somebody minister to you and care for you, okay? Be the hands and feet of Jesus to you before you leave. So we'll do a soft close here. Just make sure you make your way uh, to get your kids by noon. If you need to pray for someone, this is the time to do that. If you just need to sit and pray, great. But this is, this is still part of the gathering, but it's a soft close. So you'll see people leaving and doing those kinds of things, okay? Love you guys very much. Enjoy your Sunday.